Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, our guest is Dan Pfeiffer. Yes, you know him as the co-host of Pod Save America. He was Obama's communications czar in the White House. Before we get to that, I want to talk to you about something. Uh, you want to have a say in what we cover here at the Chronicle on our podcast? We want to know what you want to hear. We want to make our podcast better at the Chronicle, and who better to tell us about that than you, our listeners? So take a quick survey at sfchronicle.com slash podcast survey. And if you complete it, you'll be entered in a drawing for one of five $100 gift cards. Yeah, you can get 100 bucks just for filling out a survey about a podcast. That's sfchronicle.com slash podcast survey. Hey, let's go to Dan Pfeiffer now. Is the author of the new book, Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. We're talking to him about all the Democratic candidates, what's going to be happening in the Nevada caucuses, what's going to be happening in the California primary, who's strong, who's not, what are their weaknesses, and what is what are Dan's advice, what's Dan's advice for the next Democratic nominee? He gives advice on how they could be Trump. And remember, this guy's with Obama and who won twice. And now, our conversation with Dan Pfeiffer. All right, Dan Pfeiffer, welcome back to It's All Political. Last time I think we did this, we were at Scribd. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Interview with you uh, for your last best-selling book. You're back with a new book now. Hope it's not my only best-selling book. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out, yes. It's uh, your new book is called Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again, officially coming out uh, December 28th, we're recording this a couple weeks February early. 18th. February 18th. I said February 12th. Well, you would know. I February said 18th. February 18th, it's yes. officially out. Tuesday. Tuesday. All right. And you're doing a couple of appearances here in San Francisco. Thursday, uh, February 27th, you'll be at the uh, City Arts and Lectures, the Sydney Goldstein Theater at 7.30 p.m. And Saturday, February 29th, the Leap Year Day uh, speaking and signing event at the uh, Book Passage in Quarter Madeira at 4 p.m. Okay, we're gonna we'll we'll jump into the the political stuff in a minute, but I want to talk about some of the stuff in the book because I sure. I've actually been one of the people who read the book. Well, I I look every everyone everyone <laughs> means something to me, so I appreciate that. Um, so I, the the mo- one of the many interesting parts of the book is when you write your memo to mm-hmm. whomever the Democratic nominee is going to be, and uh, you it you say uh, and. It, as we we've seen by talking to voters that all the, every democratic voter is like a pundit. Now they're trying to outthink yeah. what they're supposed to do and who's supposed to be good. And, and you give some advice, um, to, uh, to the nominee. And one of the things that I find interesting is that you said hit Trump where he is strong, forget all the other crap that he's done, the lies, blah, 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 hit him where he's strong. Talk a little bit about that. That it's like on, on the economy, he, he brags about the economy. How do you attack the president on the economy? I think there's, Two elements of this. One is, I think, Democrats think Trump pulled the wool over the eyes of voters. And I think that's a, that is a elitist and somewhat condescending decision. Voters knew what they were getting with Trump. The, what they ultimately, like, obviously, let's put, let's cut, put aside the MAGA base, right? But sort of the voters who decided this election, who put Trump in the Oval Office, they knew he wasn't honest. They knew he was sort of a con man. They knew he was brash. They knew he said some things that were offensive, misogynistic, racist. 
but ultimately they made a bet on him. They gambled that he, that the system as it existed was not working for them. Therefore, they were willing to roll the dice. And the Democratic strategy for the last few years has too much been, if we only told these voters how terrible Trump is, they would change their mind. But they know that already. Yeah, you don't have to litigated. convince them that. Yeah. So, you, so my argument is you should hit him where he's strong. He has two big strengths. One is the economy. He is an incumbent running in a very strong economy. As someone who worked for Barack Obama, I feel like he is most certainly taking credit for all of our work. Mm-hmm. But, but voters give him credit for it, so you got to take him there. The other one is trade. And I think he is massively vulnerable in these areas because he his rhetoric and the reality have not um, have not lined up. And so, like my advice to the Democratic now, I mean, all Democrats running up and down the ballot is you have to take on those questions. You have to take hit him where he's strong. And and essentially, nothing is more important than the economic argument. Trade is sort of a subset of that. But if we do not reframe the conversation around the economy, we will lose this election. How do you reframe the, the trade deals? Because, he, you know, he says, oh, farmers are with me. But they, they got hurt. They, they all, I mean, Wisconsin, the uh, swing state, there's a record number of dairy farm closures. What, how do you tell that story? The, this is a decision. The trade story got more complicated when the Democrats decided to work with Trump to pass NAFTA 2.0. Mm-hmm. Because we did a bunch of testing, crooked media the company that owns Positive America does polling periodically. We did testing in battleground states, and one of the uh, one of the attacks that Trump is most vulnerable on that moves swing voters twenty to thirty points less likely to support Trump is about him trying to pass NAFTA two working with big drug companies, Wall Street, large corporations. That is more challenging now that Democrats have put their stamp of approval on it. Mm. You know, and I think. The ability to to um, to wage that argument is going to depend on who the nominee is. Like if it is Bernie Sanders, he's actually going to have an advantage there because he opposed NAFTA 2.0. Yeah, but I think he's on trade, the only one left who is opposed to who opposed that to is his, correct. His one, I think I'm not like positive about Steyer, but of the oh. top five, he is the, the people actually the voted. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the people. Yeah, is, the people actually voted. He is the he is the one. Um, but I think like you have multiple opportunities. One is as you point out the. You know, our trade wars, which have been really sort of a product of Trump's chaotic leadership style of hurt farmers. He has is, there's this great sort of messaging, I think, comes from this, which is Trump started a trade war with China. And then in order to he started losing the trade war in order to try to make farmers more whole. He borrowed money from China to give <laughs> to them. But he did it in such an incompetent way that he ended up giving most of the money to large corporations, including large meatpacking plants in Brazil. And so this is like this can go right at the negative effects on American families of Trump's chaotic leadership style. The, ch- the challenge is telling that story in a condensed way that people can digest. it. Yes. And, and, and telling it over time. Yeah. Right. So that people because breaking through in the Trump media ecosystem is very challenging. You, you say make this a. Um, not a, a, a you said make this a choice, not a referendum on Trump. Um, you know, like like Romney tried to do against Obama. But isn't that what Biden's doing and he's not doing it well? well right. I think I don't measure that any of the Dem- potential Democratic nominees have nailed this yet. The constant advice you get from political consultants, from the one gazillion pundits who live on Twitter now and are Democratic <laughs> voters is we have to take down Trump. We have to make this about Trump. We have to make this an up or down vote on his presidency. And that is quite appealing because there are elements of it that are like very that, you know, would be very dissuasive to a lot of potential voters. The corruption, 
the incompetence, just the na- the global embarrassment, the racism. There are all these things about Trump. But like I said before, people know that about him. So mm. you have to you're asking people now to make a huge bet on you if you're the nominee, because, mm. you know, I've seen a lot of research on this, which is and we experienced this in the Obama campaign in 2012. People naturally think presidents should get two terms. So mm. it is much harder to convince you would have a high burden to prove to them that they should be fired from their job. It's one thing, open seats are easier because it's hire me or hire the other person. Right. This case, it's fire the other person, hire me. So you gotta tell your story about who you are, why you are better, why, I mean, there's definitely an element of it, which is why the gamble you took on Trump four years ago did not work, but you also have to tell them why the gamble on you is worth it. You also, uh, another piece of advice you give is to run to win, uh, kind of what the let X be X type of thing. I think you guys were talking about this the other day on, on the podcast, and and, and I had this, kind of the same reaction after hearing Buttigieg's uh, New Hampshire speech, which was he's become more wooden on the trail. He's yeah. almost like he's you know um, almost a paint by numbers thing. I remember he he came in here to this podcast like very early, very loose. I mean, as loose as he can be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, not exactly a, a not, cut up. Not, yeah, not, <laughs> yeah. Not, a, not a not a dance yeah. on the table yeah. kind of guy. Um, but he, he's a little stiff. Is he, is that, it's, is he an example of someone who's getting a little overcoached right now? I don't know if it's overcoached. I think, I agree with you. I have the exact same experience. I interviewed uh, Mayor Buttigieg very early on. And it's like, we had all, almost all the candidates come through Pod Save America. Yeah. And we had just, I, we did, we rotated, right? On who, like whoever came, like it was your turn, whichever candidate was coming through, you got. So first candidate came through was Kirsten Gillibrand. She was sort of like a very interesting candidate who was doing well at the time. Yeah. John Favreau got her. Next candidate comes through is Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Tommy Vitor got her. I'm next up, and it's next candidate's Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. And I was like, I had interviewed him once before when he was running for DNC chair. I thought he was a really smart guy, but it's like, fine, right? He was, yeah. where, where's the, this guy the going? The mayor, right? mayor of nowhere. And yeah, he yeah, knocked, yeah. In, I will say, in the interview, he knocked it out of the park. It was yeah. for a long time the most watched YouTube in all of crooked media. Um, but any, but to the same experience you had, he was very not loose, but not afraid to say anything. He was talking about getting rid of the filibuster and changing the composition of Supreme yeah. court and being very bold. And I do, I had the exact same experience watching his speech in New Hampshire, which it felt more cautious. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, I think there's always an element of wooden when he gives speeches. Cause he's, I think he's not great at emoting in public. No, and, no. And I think that is one of his great weaknesses as a candidate. He has a multitude of strengths. But I think I think there is a risk that he will or that as he can once you can start imagining yourself in the Oval Office or seeing yourself on the convention stage, you start to get more risk averse. Obama mm. fell had this happen to Obama in 08 several times. We would surge, do great, get a bunch of wins, get a little more cautious lose touch with the things that made the campaign great and then get knocked on our ass and have to get back up again. And so I would, I would, I think that for all the candidates, um, Buttigieg in particular, cause I think he's the other, he's the candidate who other than Bernie Sanders with the great, the greatest likelihood of being then emerging from the first four States as a front runner. Uh, the fear would be don't lose the, what got him to this place was being, bold and brave and willing to go anywhere and say whatever he felt was the thing he needed to be said. And don't 
don't get I don't don't get I don't know if it's overmanaged or overcoached or overcautious because you can almost taste it now and you get a little you'll worried more worried about making a mistake. And I think the debate that's coming up next week will be a test for the, all the candidates that way. Oh, it'll, it'll be a good one. And it, just going back to the New Hampshire thing, I I went back and I you know the the I got to say not to go all, oh nuts on Obama, but the New Hampshire Obama speech is when he lost. Yeah, it was still I think one of his best speeches. And I went back and read and listened to that, and it was. There's not a lot of policy points in that, but no. it's it's such an uplifting speech. I, I read that's like, wait, this guy lost. And well, was... you know, there is a backstory to that, yeah. which is uh, we were so confident we were going to win. Our pollster told us we would win by ten. That was that was his prediction. Like we never, we like honestly never imagined losing. John Favreau did not write a concession speech. Oh no! And so we didn't know we were going to lose until after the polls closed. And like we knew it was going to be very close based on exit polls and turnout numbers. But now he's now he has no concession speech and he talked to Obama. And so basically what they ended up doing was just uh, changing the front of the speech where they congratulate Hillary Clinton on the win and then just give the same speech because the speech they had written was not really about winning New Hampshire. It was about hope and possibility and all of that. So. Amazingly, uh, a set of tremendous uh, hubris, I guess, on our part led to this great speech. But (laughs) the thing that's funny about that is we in Obama world are, during our campaign days, were the most superstitious people you could possibly imagine. We, the, the day we won the South Carolina primary, we had eaten at a certain table at a restaurant in the building in the campaign headquarters. So therefore, I made everyone who worked for me eat at that table for every primary for the first time. But there was a primary every three days for like four months. This, this sounds like the plot, the silver linings playbook. I mean, it re- you know? Very similar. <laughs> the, the After that terrible first debate in 2012, um, David Axelrod, David Plouffe, John Favreau, and Robert Gibbs were at, ate at, a de- ate at a diner before debate two. Obama did well. So they drove all over wherever that third debate was in Florida or wherever else to find a diner. I sat. I was. I was in Chicago for that debate. So I flew sit, sit, sitting from D.C. to Chicago day of the debate in like seat seven A or something on the flight for debate two. So for debate three, I asked a person to change seats oh, with me so I could sit in seven A. That's yes. kind of sick. That all comes from <laughs> is... not writing that damn that damn concession speech in New Hampshire. We learned our lesson. Oh my Do God. not mess with the karma gods. <laughs> That sounds like me watching a Steeler game. Yeah, very, I, I mean, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. If I'm, they haven't scored in the first quarter, I'm switching yeah, seats. Yeah, move your yes, seats. Yeah. That's right. All right. So um, the other thing I want to ask you, but it was about, um, you know, in this in this podcast, we talked a lot about um, what Democrats should do. We've got Amy Allison in here and and, and, and should Democrats go uh, for expanding the electorate, electorate to re- reconstitute the Obama coalition? Or should they focus on folks in the Midwest, the, you know, the, the Trump, the Obama Trump voter they lost? You, you in the book, you say that those are those are bullshit arguments. These are these are that you can do both. But can you really do both? Don't you have to spend well, Obama money? Did towards, he did both, but he, he was kind of the first person to kind of not the first person to do that. But don't you think that the, the, at some point, either whether it be the party or an IE has to spend a certain amount of money on one on one bet or the other? Is going to be is a state by state strategy. If we, I think I say as I say in the book, if we had a popular, if you, the popular vote decided, national popular vote decided the president, Democrats could very easily pick base mobilization and nothing else, right? The, the, because there are enough Democratic voters. Like if we could just get turnout up 
California, New York. Uh, it would, you know, just maximizing African-American turnout in Southern states, you could get there. The problem is we have a very stupid system with the Electoral College. And so yes. therefore, you need different strategies for all these states. But the problem is the states that are now the ones who are going to decide the election do not have enough outstanding untapped base vote to make up the difference. So you, you're required to do both. Now, in each individual state, the mix between registration and persuasion or GOTV and persuasion may be different. You're going to be doing more like in Wisconsin. There's definitely a lot of work to do to turn out more voters in Milwaukee and some of the college students who did not turn out in 2016. Right. But you also are going to have to persuade some portion of people who voted for Trump in 2016 and some people who and or some people who voted for Gary Johnson or another third party candidate in 2016. So you're going to have to do both. And the thing that I think Democrats miss is the same message works with both vote, with mm-hmm. both groups. Like we think that you know, like pundits would tell you for every base voter you get with super woke leftist language, you lose one swing voter in Wisconsin. And that's really not how it works in that the same economic arguments work for both voters, both groups of voters. And that is a thing that was our great political superpower in the Obama era was we could say the same thing to help turn out an African-American voter in Milwaukee or Philadelphia or Cleveland, a unregistered Hispanic voter in Florida or Colorado, and a independent in Wisconsin or But how Iowa. much was that the message and how much was that Obama? Well, it's everything is like it is it is all the message is only as good as the messenger. Mm-hmm. And so Obama was very talented. He had broad appeal. He also built his political appeal and be able to do both. That was always our idea. We were going to have to do both. And so it's it is like this is not easy. It is. This is not just like here's a set of talking points. It doesn't matter who you put up to do it. Right. The message has to be uh, authentic to the messenger and the messenger has to be appealing to a broad set of voters. And we don't know who that person, that best person is right now, which is why the democratic party is stuck in a case of sort of electoral anxiety paralysis. Yeah. You're listening to my conversation with Dan Pfeiffer. We'll have more after this short break. You write in the book, and you've talked about this a bunch on Pod Save America, that you often dream of running a super PAC that's funded by a billionaire. It turns out our billionaires like running for president yeah. instead of funding super PACs, <laughs> but... <laughs> the losers may wind up funding the super yeah. PACs. Um, so, but one idea you have in the book is to get one of America's best filmmakers, like Jordan Peele or Adam McKay or Greta Gerwig, and get them to design ads that would, quote, trigger Trump. Give it, give us, what's your, what's your dream ad? What is this looking like? Well, what leads it, what the genesis of the idea here is like, I generally believe like, I hate the ads. Like, well, let me explain it back up a step. You hate TV ads. I hate, I hate most TV ads, yeah. but there is a particular set of TV ads I really hate, which is there is this bipartisan grift in Washington where usually a bipartisan consulting team tells some interest group that the best way to influence policymakers is buy ads on CNN and meet the press in D.C. It's like, this is what political people watch. And it is just a get-rich scheme. And I hate them. And so I would usually hate something like this. But the idea I have is that when Trump acts like a lunatic, when he is in a Twitter war, when he's tweeting about something, that is usually bad for his poll numbers. 
worse. Mm. It usually it it's bad in two ways. One, it reminds people that it's that the Trump era is exhausting and chaotic, but it's also time is a is the only non-renewable resource in politics. And so every day he's fighting, complaining about some SNL skit is a day he's not <laughs> making the case to voters about his economic stewardship. And so the idea would be to find a set of ads that would trigger Trump into some sort of Twitter tantrum. <laughs> and you would obviously air them on Fox during his favorite shows, Fox and Friends, Janine Pirro. You would match up your ad buy to uh, the weather because if it's raining on a weekend and he can't golf, all he does <laughs> is watch Fox. So you could really get him going there. A weather tag that. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, there are lots of different ways to do this. And, you know, I think about like, what are some of the things that make Trump crazy? Right. One of them is Obama. Trump is obsessed with Obama and he's obsessed with because he knows down deep that he is not Obama. And so like like I talk in the book about an ad where you showed Obama's inauguration crowd against Trump's inauguration crowd. You showed uh, Obama getting the Nobel Prize, something Trump really wants but doesn't have. You you know went through his accomplishments. You showed people cheering for him. And, you know, world, you know, you know, visiting, traveling the world in Europe and, all, you know, tens of thousands of people outside cheering Obama and people protesting Trump to get him to upset. Obviously, you know, any time he is criticized by a celebrity and particularly a celebrity of, or an athlete uh, or particularly an athlete or celebrity of color, it makes him crazy. Any yeah. you want to just try to, like, get in his brain and make <laughs> him do things that distract from the task at hand, which is. Try to he has to expand his vote to win, and when he act, when he acts like that, when he's in a temper tantrum, or he spends his time trying to get Roger Stone off and all those sorts of things, that those are days that he is not spe- he's not doing the job of getting reelected, and that's to our advantage. Did, uh, uh, Bloomberg today, as we're recording this, uh, went at Trump uh, with the, uh, the tweet that said, "I hate to talk and write about tweets all the time, but this <laughs> it's one the world we live in. It's yes. the world we have to. If, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it with you." Um, uh, he was responding to the president. He said, we know many of the same people in New York. Behind your back, they laugh at you and call you a carnival barking de clown. They know you inherited a fortune, squandered it with stupid deals and incompetence. I have the record and the resources to defeat you, and I will. Is that effective? Or is, I mean, it's, you know, it's amusing to us, but... Uh, I, it's not... But, a, I think it, it, like, it, it fits in the theory of my weather-related ads, which yeah. is it will bother Trump because it's a thing that I mean, Trump is a giant mall of insecurity. They can't like it's a bottomless pit that cannot be filled. And it's because he knows that in polite society in New York, he has wanted to be, you know, a, a, he's a wannabe. He he's wants a wannabe. He wants that. And he knows that they sort of laugh at him. So Bloomberg's doing that. Is that a way to win the election in the long run? Is that going to persuade voters? No. Mm. Is that a successful messaging strategy? No. As a as a one off like tweak of of Trump? Yeah, it's pretty good. I also think. The fact that you and I are talking about it, it it is a will be seen by some of our pundit voters as a data point in the Bloomberg electability column. Mm. Is a is a positive point? As a, I think people think it's a positive. I don't necessarily just, view it as a positive. I don't think it's a negative either. I think it's, it's sort like of it's nothing. just nothing. Yeah, yeah. Now you write in the book that you believe that Trumpism will survive Trump. Why is that? We a lot of people think, well, no, this just all goes away when he leaves. But you said there's there's a lot of mini me's around. There. Yeah, I think. Well, I think the the I think the biggest divide in the Democratic Party is not between left and right. It's between people who think Trump broke our democracy and those who understand it, 
or believe as I do that Trump is a product of our broken democracy. He is the he is not an aberration. He is the logical extension of a path the Republican Party has been on for a long time. And Trump is probably the uh, greatest caricature of this, but a billionaire funded politician running on a racial grievance agenda with an anti-democratic strategy of reducing the power of the people. That is the Republican playbook. Trump is just the first person to succeed with it. And but he's but he's the only one with a hundred percent name recognition, though, right? Isn't that right, the big but, difference? But like, the, like I think Trump is an existential threat to the country and the planet. Mm-hmm. But and but what what worries me even more than Trump is the next Republican president is probably not going to spend their days getting in Twitter fights with Deborah Messing. They are going to be they're going to use every lever of power. They will have the brains and the attention span to actually do the things that Trump could do if he was a more focused, better staff, smarter person. And I think this is we got Trump because a because our political institutions in this country, the structures of them benefit minority rule. And the Republicans have ruthless, but that is that is a fact of the Electoral College and how demographics have played out. But Republicans have ruthlessly exploited that because they have known for a very long time that in the like I think Obama's win in 2012 made this clear as day to them. The demographics in this country are moving in an inexorable direction against them. The country is getting younger; it's getting more diverse; it is getting more progressive. Mm-hmm. And the only so they had two options. Option one was change their agenda to be more appealing, more broadly appealing, right? Adopt, believe in climate change, come up with a conservative plan for climate change, become more uh, progressive on civil rights, adopt immigration reform, get, you know, sort of push the Steve Kings and the other, and the Sean Hannity's and the other sort of racist grifters out of the party. But they, or the other option was double down on the white vote and then put in, pass laws and other plans to suppress the votes of minorities, to basically put in plan what, what is a long-term plan for a shrinking, mostly white, conservative minority to govern a growing, diverse, progressive majority in this country. And if Democrats do not take on that idea, we're going to be right, we'll be right back in here with a smarter Trump in four years, eight years, whatever it is. And so we have real work to do to make, like, fix our democracy so that the, the majority of people who are who agree with Democrats on the majority of things have an actual say in their government. I want to talk to you about some of the people who could be uh, who could be mm-hmm. taking on the president uh, this year. Let's talk. Um, you think Bernie Sanders could be Trump? I do. You do. I do. I, why, I, why, I will. I will, so? I will give you a caveat to all of this, which yep. is I got 2016 wrong. I did not think Trump could get, win. get in line. Right. And, <laughs> but so I want to bring. Like. Try. I think. I think everyone involved should bring try to bring humility to the idea of who can and can't win. Yes. And every one of these people you're about to ask me about has, I think, strengths and weaknesses. And the, some of those strengths will help them with some of the voters we need, and those weaknesses will hurt them with other voters we need. So where where are the pluses and minuses of Bernie? So here, because I mean, the, today as we're recording this, James Carville, you know, mm-hmm. who helped a previous Democrat yes. get into the White House. And uh, James uh, Thomas Friedman said this the other day too, New York Times columnist. But today, uh, Carvel called him a communist. He called Bernie a communist, and, and that's just a preview of what the you know. Oh, for uh, sure. I mean, we're going to see yeah. six months of that. Yeah. If, uh, I mean, is that effective to anyone younger or uh, you, I mean, 
well, it's affected people older than us, but certainly not the people younger. I, look, Bernie Sanders's decision to label himself a democratic socialist is a massive, glaring political vulnerability. It can be navigated for sure, but it 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 it, it is. How do you navigate that? Well, I think the the key to this is have he needs to have a better explanation for what that means. Mm-hmm. He has tried a number of different ones. It's not Russia. It's Denmark, right? It's not. Uh, <laughs> and then he gave a speech. He gave a speech last year where he basically he had two messages. One was uh, Trump and the Republicans support corporate socialism, tax breaks for uh, and bailout, bailouts for banks, tax breaks for oil companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what he is for, but basically his policies are the natural extension of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. Mm-hmm. And I think there is, I think that is a complicated story, but there is some pot- messaging potential in that. The, I think the real thing is going to be less explaining socialism and more what is politics is, and I think this is the thing that a lot of people get wrong. And I think it was one of the reasons I got 2016 wrong is politics is more about identity than ideology. Mm-hmm. Where Bernie Sanders sits on the on the ideological spectrum is less important to the voters who are going to decide the election, which I include as persuadable swing voters and the other group of swing voters we never talk about, which is people who aren't planning to vote, who are trying to persuade to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernie Sanders needs to show them that he has an ideological in an ideolo- a he shares an identity with them. Mm-hmm. That he share that he will fight for them. He is uh, he is on their side in the big battles we're going to have. And Sanders, like I think, the challenges for him are Bernie Trump is going to call every Democrat a socialist. They ran ads yeah. calling Obama a socialist. Right. Now That's it becomes right. much harder when you call yourself a socialist to push back on that. <laughs> but where's but Sanders does have. And I, of all the Democrats running right now, I just saw a poll on this two weeks ago. He has the highest approval rating of the Obama Trump voters of all the Democrats. There was a, I'd be interested to see an update this, but NBC did this uh, polling project back in 2018 where they polled all the Trump counties. These are the counties that moved the furthest in Trump's direction, mm-hmm. helped deliver him the presidency. The most popular politician in all of those counties was Barack Obama. The second most popular politician and pretty close to Obama was Bernie Sanders. Hmm. And like there, like he, like I talk a lot in the book about the need to be authentic and how you, and Bernie Sanders is like, he comes off as authentic. This is Bernie Sanders. He, it's been Bernie Sanders for four decades. And that is that, you know, I think that is one of his real advantages. He doesn't seem like a politician. And that is a, that is a political superpower in this era. I mean, has challenges for sure, but I definitely think he can win and he fires people up and enthusiasm is a big part of this. Now, what's up with your old friend, your your uh, Delaware Paisan, uh, Joe Biden? Uh, I've seen him on the stump. I've seen him in private fundraisers at the uh, Feinstein's house here as the pool reporter. And, and he just seems a step slow, a step slower, I should say. Can he win this? I mean, he just. Uh, can he win the primary or can he win the general? Well, both. He can still win the primary. He is to do so would be to accomplish a feat that no one has ever done before. Right. People have always, and and that feat is is you know uh, being out of the money in uh, Iowa and uh, yeah. New Hampshire. Yeah, right. I mean, people always say you have to win Iowa or New Hampshire. That's not actually true. Bill Clinton won neither, and he won the nomination. But he came in second in New Hampshire. Iowa was not competitive that year. He came in second. New Hampshire, and it was viewed as a win. 
Um, because <laughs> one of the greatest was, spins of all time. Yeah, and he was Come running. Against, he was running against a Massachusetts senator. Um, something that apparently is less valuable now. Um, but he is going to have to, in order to win the nomination, he is going to have to in this debate coming up next week. He's going to have to demonstrate real strength. Uh, he's going to have to, I think, massively outperform expectations in Nevada. Uh, like what? Like what? For I think mean? if he he needs to come in first or second. Mm. And then he has to win South Carolina going away. And that gives him a shot. And, and I would put it like no more than a shot. It gives him a shot. There is a deep well of affection for Joe Biden in the Democratic Party. Oh, yeah. Because but, does, but he does seem a little slower. He, his campaign trail performance has been many times suboptimal, yeah. particularly on debate stage. And yes, very. that in an, in an election where people are so worried about electability, whatever the hell that means. Right. That that has that that has caused been a I think a driver of the erosion in his support because it's been happening. It's the states that have seen him the most who are who are deciding he's not the most electable candidate in that field, and that's a real problem. And he uh, uh, and especially when electability is your is your mo. I mean, that's your yeah, he, that, your core. That was campaign. I think that is the fundamental yeah. mistake yeah. of his campaign was yeah. he made his campaign about electability. When his campaign knew that he was probably going to lose Iowa. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has said, hey, you know, when you see her on the trail and you hear her give a long speech, she has a, a wonderful backstory, uh, very humble beginnings and such. Um, but if, uh, what's happened to her? She's, uh, is it, is it, I mean, she, you know, she did finish fine in, in Iowa, but um, is she, is she, can she still win or, or, or is that going to be harder for her? I mean, I think she has the same challenges that Biden has which is she has to out, she has to very well outperform expectations in both states. And that's mm. harder for her because while she earlier in the campaign, she was seen as a real contender in New, in Nevada. It's not necessarily a place that where she has a base or a strong like Biden theoretically has in South Carolina. So she doesn't have any home home games left before you get to Super Tuesday. Good news for her. She has a really good, her. She has a really good organization in Nevada. And the ability to raise money online, which Biden struggles with. So mm -hmm. she can get some resources. And if she has a good day in Nevada, she, there's also a lot of affection for her among a lot of people in the party. And I think you, people could come home to her, mm -hmm. you know, because if Buttigieg uh, falters or Klobuchar falters, I think a lot of that support goes to Warren uh, if she shows strength. And, and uh, going back to Mayor Pete, he's, you know, he's, he's said that um, uh, the, his, his problem with black voters they once they get to know me, we'll be okay. But I mean, TikTok, baby. Yeah, you I know, mean, when, how do you get to know? <laughs> there's, I, there's speed dating, but you know, you can't, you can't. How do you get to know somebody this quickly? I think he is the he is the ability to change the narrative narrative somewhat with voters with color if he performs very well in Nevada. I was listening to John Ralston on David Pluff's podcast on my uh, ride in here, and Ralston was saying that Buttigieg has the the best or the second best organization in the state. And he expects him to be viable in all four congressional districts. So if he is a strong second again to Sanders and he does it and pulls in a and you can't really do that. You, you need you need it's 30 percent of the, the, yeah, the, so the electorate. He, there so if he Latino, does that, yeah. I think that opens the door for him. I think he. I have I watch his speeches all the time. I see a, like he he's omnipresent in the media, and, which I think is very good. It mm -hmm. is one of very the good. strength of his campaigns. Yeah. But I almost never see him make a proactive pitch to voters of color. It's mm. always in response to what is usually a very harsh question, which is why do they hate you? 
<laughs> and it's like you can never do that well, right? And, I think I've asked him that question. Yeah, it's right. yes, it's, it's, and so you, know, you no always hear answer. him talk about independence and future former Republicans. But yeah. but I think he he and his campaign have struggled to make a making a proactive pitch to the base of the Democratic Party part of his of his stump. And, and and can Bloomberg, I know the strategy aside of blowing off the early states and, and doing Super Tuesday aside, it can, does he, can he win? I mean, could he win? I mean, do, do, would America be okay with one billionaire against another, one New York City billionaire against another? I know you're going to make your quote billionaire joke on, on Trump. Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. not really a billionaire. But I mean, would that really, could, could you get the, could you get the Obama coalition behind Bloomberg? I, Especially with the stop and frisk I, stuff? I don't know. I, yeah. I I mean, can he win? Yes. I think, look, we're such a polarized country. The floor is so high for any Democrat that it, you're re- we're really only talking about 300,000 votes over four states that are going to decide this thing. And so once you get to that narrow, any candidate has a shot. Um, so Bloomberg certainly has a shot. And but on paper, you would not say that the. Um, the billionaire former Republican mayor of New York who spoke at the GOP convention in 2004 would be the <laughs> the Democratic candidate we would dream of. He has a very smart political team around him. He obviously has, but Democrats, if Bloomberg is not the nominee, Democrats are going to get massively outspent like we've never seen before. And mm-hmm. Bloomberg has shown like he could drop $3 billion and it is nothing to him. No, right? he spent half a and billion so, in a couple of months. So he can do that, I think, for a lot of voters, I think there are a lot of voters out there who are like who are looking for a permission for a for someone to create a permission structure for them to vote for someone other than Trump. Mm. Where it's like they know they want to that Trump is not who they want to vote for. Mm. But you can see a, like this is a hypothetical world, right? This is the Bloomberg argument, which is got all these voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. They're either blue collar voters who disapprove of Trump. They either voted for him or Gary Johnson last time. You have these suburban Romney Clinton voters who they voted for Romney in 12, Clinton in 16, and a Democrat for Congress in 2018. This is the these are the group that put Arizona on the map for us in 2020. And the question for them is like, we don't want like most of our friends and family are Trump supporters. Most people who live around, most people who go to our church are Trump supporters. But but I really don't want to vote for Trump. And so is it but am I really going to vote for someone who calls himself a socialist or Elizabeth Warren, who is is a quote unquote liberal and also is for Medicare for all? I just I just need an excuse to vote against Trump. And Bloomberg would be like, the guy's basically he's a billionaire business guy. He's basically a Republican. Like that's easy. <laughs> now the flip side of that problem is, as you mentioned, is he going to get the turnout we need? among Democrat about young voters and right. voters of color after some of his record in New York. You know, maybe Trump running against Trump helps that. Um, but it, that that is the open question for him. Um, you were a California, you're a San Franciscan. You, you yeah. live here. Well, I uh, moved to the East Bay now. Oh, you so did? You're, did, you're yeah. in the East Bay and you're the 510 with Mary. You're in Oakland yeah. or where are you at? You're, uh, or, uh, Lafayette. Lafayette, okay. Yeah. Um, what, uh, but... Uh, in California, who uh, Bernie's ahead in the polls here? How do you see this uh, California primary? Uh, I had and then, uh, spent, breaking down. I had spent much of this election thinking California had made a fatal error by going on Super Tuesday, and that California should have really? waited and gone later in the process and stood on their own. Like mm. so, they would create a time period because it's being like it goes South Carolina on Saturday, 
California and every in the rest of the country on Tuesday. And there's no time to do anything, right? To really yeah. campaign in California. So if you had gone like Pennsylvania was many years ago, where it's like two months later, right? There's obviously yeah, a risk. Mid-April it's over. It's always Pennsylvania. Yeah. Right. Like there's always a risk it's over. But if you're like, if you got find a vacuum in the calendar, people really come. But I think what is happening now is California is going to decide whether Bernie Sanders is the nominee. Really? Why because do you say that? I am of the belief that California is the most delegates. This is the state where Bernie Sanders is the strongest. Polling I have seen puts him north of 30. Now, whether that'll still be true, you know, in three he's, weeks. He's, he's far out ahead in, in the early. But if he wins, theater. if he wins the state by eight to 10 points, he could net 100 delegates over the other person. And the way Democrats award delegates proportionally is you have a 100 delegate lead. It is really hard to come back from that, particularly if he is if he if he's also picking up, if, you know, six delegates here, 15 delegates in this other state. But California could be the one that decides that Bernie Sanders is the nominee. And because it work, it fits perfectly in the calendar for him, which is if he does pretty good in South Carolina, it's not going to necessarily cause any erosion in his support here. And the race may be still so muddled that whatever i don't like the term the center left lane or the moderate lane it's like whatever the non bernie lane is where it's <laughs> so Buttigieg, edge you know let's say let's say uh bloomberg's obviously out here spending a ton of money let's he's at 14 15% in these polls i've seen uh the last i guess the last poll i saw was the last public poll was like bernie was at 30 and then there were biden warren were at like 17 what, last, uh, last poll i saw a uh, white uh, uh, Warren had uh, pulled ahead of uh, of Biden, and he had dropped back to like fifteen. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, but so, he, like, you if you get a bunch of candidates right around that fifteen percent viability threshold, and Bernie is at thirty, he's going to clean up delegates everywhere, and he won't have the majority, obviously, but he will have a lead that will, that may be insurmountable for any other candidate. And so, I think California is going to play the biggest role uh, in deciding who the nominee is if we continue on the path we are on. As as of today, um, I got to take off in a couple of minutes. I, I want to uh, point to listeners and future readers to a couple of uh, things you are calling for, and you've alluded to them in the podcast. Mm-hmm. You want to expand the Supreme Court. These are reforms to uh, of the uh, process and government. Mm-hmm. Uh, ex- eliminate the fil- filibuster. Eliminate the electoral college. Um, Want to just say a couple of words on on in your on your general reforms there. These are these are all be huge lifts. Correct? Absolutely. Well, the Supreme Court's actually a relatively so the filibuster requires fifty senators, nothing else. Mm-hmm. So if you if we take the Senate majority, we if you take it. the Senate, and we've done it. The Harry Reid eliminated the filibuster for judges and executive presidential appointments in twenty thirteen. Mitch McConnell eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in twenty seventeen. It's a very easy thing to do. I also argue that we should add states to the to the to the union. Yes. Starting with DC, that also takes uh, the House and fifty senators. If you've already gotten rid of the filibuster and signature of the president, that could be done in the first week of a new Democratic administration with Democratic Senate. Right thing to do, but also help deal with our massive Senate problem where the Senate is biased in, terribly in favor of. Uh, conservative rural states. It's it's only going to get worse. And it's getting much worse, yeah, yeah. Uh, much, much worse. Uh, 
there is a lot of opposition within the Democratic Party to a lot of these ideas. Like that is the problem. There is, I feel I'm very concerned. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is I think a lot of Democrats are overly sanguine about the dangers to our democracy. We are headed in a very bad direction because the country is getting more diverse and more progressive and our governing institutions are continuing to put power in the hands of a white conservative minority. And it is not inevitable that democracy will survive as we've understood it in this country forever. That mm -hmm. is not actually the case at all. And there's real strains on it. And we, you saw it throughout the impeachment trial where the normal levers of power where you convince a majority of the country that there should be witnesses. 75% of the country should be witnesses and Republicans can just stick their thumb in your nose because they know that they have a set of structural advantages. And so, and if we care, and the reason why this is so important is we're having this debate about Medicare for all and Green New Deal and free college and all of that. And that debate, like this, those, that's an important debate because it tells you the the values of the candidates, like what it is they care about, what they prioritize. But it is a waste of time unless you talk about, if you spend all the time we spend talking about what people are going to do is a waste of time. We're going to talk about how they're going to get it done. And the only way we're getting any of those things done, Medicare for all, Medicare for some, Medicare for one more person in this fucking country <laughs> is if we change political the political structures. And some of these ideas are very, uh, like, like adding two Supreme Court justices as retribution or not even Richard is probably not the right word, but as a response to Mitch McConnell stealing the uh, the Antonin Scalia seat yeah. with Merrick Garland from Obama, they're like they are aggressive. But I think we need to be aggressive, and I also think we have to have the aggressive conversation because I think those of us who are worried about our democracy should look at the success Bernie Sanders and others on the progressive wing the Democratic Party have, have had in moving the Overton window on the discussion of policy. Absolutely, the idea just a couple the, of years. The idea that the quote unquote moderate neoliberal position is a massive expansion of government provided healthcare through a public option is a gigantic success to what Bernie and AOC and all these others have done. We have to have that conversation on the democracy side of the ledger too, because if we wanna to get to the policy side of the ledger, we have to deal with our structural reforms. And so, because I worry deeply that if, like, look, I'll be very happy if we beat Trump. It'll be a, an amazing thing. I will feel so much better about the world. But if we just beat Trump and go back to doing the business, go back to business as usual and pretend like this never, oh, that was just a thing that happened, we're fine, and don't deal with the root causes of Trumpism, we're going to be right back there with a smarter, more dangerous, less embarrassing Trump four years later. Ben Piper, thank you so much for being here. The book is called Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. He's going to be reading uh, in, in the Bay Area and across the country. And, of course, you can catch him on Pod Save America. Thanks for coming back. It's all political. Good to be here. All right. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Dan for coming into San Francisco to our studios to do today's episode. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, and the great one, Karen Creighton, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you have ideas for fixing our democracy or you could give a crap about how it's run, it's All Political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, 
subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.